0: Good morning. While the last people are getting settled
1: and seated, I'm just going to take a moment to introduce our introducer. Um, I'm Ann Browdy. I'm the director of the Women's Studies and Religion program, and uh, we are really thrilled to be part of this day of orientation, and I'm delighted to welcome you. to a panel of scholarship that also reflects on the issues that this day of orientation is devoted to in thinking about how the um, ethical issues related to race and gender and difference can be expressed and intertwined with scholarship. And that's really what the Women's Studies and Religion Program is dedicated to. We bring five scholars to the school every year who we believe are doing critical new work um, that will expand our knowledge of women, religion, and gender, but also that will make a difference through the scholarship that they are advancing. Um, so we have a, a, we're really privileged to have a group of five scholars come to the school every year. They teach a course, and you'll hear about their courses on Monday. Today, I've asked them to talk about their research. Um, which is a very important part of what they bring to the school and what the school produces. Um, uh, Our um, panel today is going to be moderated by Melissa Coles, who is the president of the HDS student organization. Um, The WSRP was really started because of student concerns going back to the 1970s when there were when women really were not represented in the curriculum or on the faculty. And this program was the response to that. It's a, a scholarly response that we need to, needed to develop a field of study that would give us the resources to address these issues. Um, I hope we've done that over the, since 1973. But there's more to do. We have a few millennia. Um, of exclusive scholarship that we need to respond to. Um, So I'm going to turn the panel over to Melissa Coles, um, who will will moderate today.
0: Hello, so to get us started, I'm going to just give brief intros to our wonderful panelists here. So this will just be a taste of all the many accomplishments. So let's go down the line. And then after the introductions, we'll start off and ask each person a question. So down here, we have Gwen Kessler. So she received her PhD in urbanics with a specialization in midrash from the Jewish Theological Seminary in 2001. Her research focuses on rabbinic interpretation of scripture or midrash, and more specifically on rabbinic theology and rabbinic constructions of gender and identity. She's coming to us from Swarthmore College, and here she is a visiting associate professor of women's studies and rabbinics, and of course, a WSRP research associate. Her research project here is The Crooked and the Straight, Queer Theory in Rabbinic Literature. Next we have Rosalind LaPierre. She is an environmental historian, ethnobotanist, writer, and popular public speaker on traditional environmental knowledge, American Indian religion, and activism. She is also a research associate with the National Museum of Natural History, the Smithsonian Institution. She is an assistant professor of environmental studies at the University of Montana, here, she is a visiting assistant professor of women's studies and environmental studies in Native American religion. And she's a WSRP research associate. And her research project is Plants That Purify the Natural and the Supernatural History of Smudging. Next, we have Taylor Grant Petrie. So he received his ThD from Harvard Divinity School in 2010, specializing in New Testament and early Christianity. He is a Lucinda Hinsdale Stone Associate Professor of Religion at Kalamazoo College, and is the Director of Women, Gender, and Sexuality Program there. His project here is Divining Gender, Mormonism, and Sexual Difference. And here, he's a Visiting Associate Professor of Women's Studies and Sexuality, and a WSRP Research Associate. Next, we have Chongshan Shi. She is an adjunct, an adjunct Assistant Professor of Liberal Arts, at the Dharma Drum Institute in Taiwan. She teaches women in contemporary Buddhism, theory and practice of Buddhist meditation, and Chan Shin. Here, she is a visiting lecturer on women's studies in Chinese religion, and she is a WSRP research associate. Her research project is the making of a modern female Chan teacher, gender, religion, and modernity. And then we have, last but not least, Lynn Gerber, Lynn's research interests focus on religion, morality, and the body in American Christianities. She's interested in the moral construction of health and illness and the ways religious communities participate in that construction. She's a co-organizer of the Global Perspectives on Religion and the AIDS Seminar of the American Academy of Religions. Here, she is a WSRP Visiting Scholar. She is a WSRP Research Associate. And her project is A Church Alive, AIDS in the Metropolitan Community Church of San Francisco. So that gives you a bit of an overview, a bit of a taste. The pages you have here at the front can give you more information. And now, what you're here for, to actually hear them talk um, instead of me, so we'll just go down the line. So, Professor Kessler, um, your project is The Crooked and the Straight Queer Theology and Rabbinic Literature. So what drew you to this topic? Um, Why are rabbinic texts an important area for queer theory? Thank you for asking.
2: Uh, I like that you said queer theology in rabbinic literature. It's actually queer theory in rabbinic literature, Um, but queer theology is part of that. Anyway, I wanna start by um, thinking out loud with two statements. One is the personal is political, and the other is knowledge is power, and hopefully these will start to answer. Um, a little bit of the questions. Uh, I'm not sure whether these are best thought of as truisms or slogans or mottos or proverbs or pieces of wisdom, rallying cries or even myths, Um, but that doesn't matter here for my purposes. Um, If I unpack the question of what drew me to the study of rabbinic literature and queer theory, other questions arise that both precede this particular blending and still hover, I suppose. What drew me to the study of rabbinics and what drew me to the study of queer theory? all come before. What drew me to this? to the meshing them together. Um, so I was drawn to the study of rabbinic literature by way of an identity that was foisted upon me, my Jewishness since I was born, or if you adopt the rabbinic perspective that I um, studied in my, that I wrote about in my first book before I was born, um, according to the rabbis. All right, questions of what does it mean to be Jewish? And as foundational texts of Judaism, rabbinic sources are one of the ways that you can answer what Judaism is and what it means to be Jewish. They're not the only places, but they're one place to begin to start to understand what Judaism is. Um, Another place that I first looked was the world of medieval Jewish philosophy. Uh, In grad school, I forsook the rationality or presumed rationality of that world for what I saw as a more chaotic and colorful, playful, and polyphonic world of midrash or Jewish scriptural interpretation. Rabbinics, for me, beckoned as a place where questions were valued and multiple answers were offered. It is a landscape that certainly uses binaries—human, divine, Jew, non-Jew, man, woman, animal, human— but also, I think, celebrates their confounding, which is a good place to jump to my interest in feminism, gender, and queer theory. As opposed to an identity that was foisted upon me, queer was one which I chose. And the same thing that attracts me to rabbinic literature draws me to queer theory. Questions, more questions, and multiple answers. Rabbinic texts, this is the second part, why I think rabbinic texts are important, and brings me to the second statement. Rabbinic texts are important for queer theory because knowledge is power. In the face of contemporary misuses of religions as guardians against change, and voices against more nuanced understandings of gender, sexuality, and gender identity, there is power in querying these sources. There is, I hope, power in in pointing to the places where bodies and genders proliferate beyond binary schemas.
0: Thank you so much. Professor Lapierre, your your topic is plants that purify the natural and supernatural history of smudging. So your scholarship in environmental studies and Native American studies builds on a 25-year apprenticeship with your grandmother studying the intimate relationship between the environment that Blackfeet women formed over Blackfeet women formed over generations. So why did you choose purification as your area of <laughs> study?
3: So let me begin by apologizing that I um, am having an allergic reaction to Cambridge, I think. <laughs> <laughs> so last, or, or the air condition, I'm not used to air conditioning and I think it might be the air conditioning. Mm-hmm. So if I lose my voice. Um, so the topic of purification, um, in uh, Blackfeet uh, religious uh, understanding was something that I actually was not particularly interested in, but an elder in our community was interested in. And because of my knowledge base um, in ethnobotany and because of my training with my grandmother in terms of her training me to be an ethnobotanist, um, he came to me and he asked the question of um, asking me to make a list of all of the plants that the Blackfeet used to use for purification because in the last um, 100 years, there has been, um, because of colonialism, uh, there has been an impact on the community in terms of what um, people's knowledge base, right? And so um, although there are a lot of knowledgeable people in our community, the knowledge of um, purification and practices of purification have really lessened. And so he wanted to make, just kind of make this list. So he came to me and he's like, can you make this list for us of um, what we call smudging, right? Um, but it's actually a purification practice. And can you make a list of all the plants? And so that was probably about 15 years ago. And Go ahead. Can you explain what smudging is? D- does
1: everybody know what smudging is? <laughs> oh, no. Okay. <laughs>
3: <laughs> so I, us- I usually say purification. So um, smudging is a practice where you take either a plant or some sort of natural element and you burn it, it's, you dry it, the plant or the natural element, because it's not always plants. Um, you dry it and then you burn that, and then you wash your—you your, symbolically wash yourself, although it's not—it's not—it's not symbolic. It's real. Um, you wash yourself and you purify your body, um, so that it, there's kind of a twofold process. One, you're cleansing yourself before you—you you participate in a religious activity or a religious ritual. Um, The other part of it is you become not human anymore. Um, For you, a human, to participate in a religious activity or to participate or interact with a supernatural, you yourself have to be not human anymore. And so smudging, part of the process of smudging is purifying yourself as a human, but also lessening your humanness. Does that make sense? (laughs) So in the community, people know what that is, right? I mean, so you don't have to explain what smudging is. So so today, when people think of smudging, there's a lot of people now who smudge. They'll have um, sage in your house, or some people have sweet grass in your house. And today, people think of it as prayer. And it's not prayer, it's something different. And so I'm actually doing research on what is that difference, but also sort of making that. So it started again with this process of an elder asking me to make this list. And I started making this list of every single plant that I could think of that was being used for um, purification practice. Every natural element um, from steam to water to um, certain types of rocks um, are used for purification. And so one of the big questions I was, once I started making that list was asking myself, why are there so many different plants that are being used for purification? And what is it about this idea of purification that is part of Blackfeet religious understanding? Um, if we need to purify ourselves, why don't we just use one plant, right? Why do we need to use so many? And so that's sort of one of the big overarching questions I'm I'm interested in looking at. But the bigger one is just kind of the idea of purification in general.
0: Thank you so much. So Professor Petrie, you work on focusing on sexual difference in Mormon theology. Um, so what's distinctive about sexuality in Mormon theology and what impact do you think, do you hope your work to have?
4: Oh, oh, okay. <laughs> uh, so, so what's distinctive about Mormonism in, in, with respect to sexual difference and, and thinking about issues of gender and sexuality? There, there are a number of uh, aspects of its history and <coughs> even current practice that are relevant there. Uh, of course, Mormonism very early on adopts a sort of radical uh, uh, sexual and social experiment of uh, polygamy in the 19th century. Uh, and uh, there were big debates in the 19th century about whether or not this is good or bad for women. Uh, uh, very early on, Mormon women were among the very first to have the right to vote in the United States. And uh, uh, so there's some really interesting feminist history and women's history that's related to this. Um, And then uh, uh, Mormonism is also doing a lot of really interesting things theologically that are are coming out of its uh, uh, kind of radical theological trajectory, which is really blurring the lines between the human and the divine, um, sometimes even eliminating those. And one of the effects of that is uh, that uh, uh, Mormons uh, consider uh, sexual relationships to be eternal relationships. That is something which persists after death. Uh, there are uh, uh, this notion that um, there's not only a a male uh, deity of a heavenly father, but that there's a companionate sexual partner of a heavenly mother uh, as well. Um, So Mormonism is kind of thinking about gender and thinking about sexuality in really interesting ways. Uh, And of course, uh, to fast forward a little bit to this last decade, Mormonism gets really deeply involved with anti-same-sex marriage politics um, in part because theologically there's not really any space for homosexuality in the tradition uh, so uh, so there's there's a lot that's at stake in thinking about those issues as well so those are some of the, some of the things that are happening in terms of the impact that I hope my work will have I hope that you know five to ten people might read it someday <laughs> <laughs> Um, that'd be nice. um but uh, but beyond that, <laughs> as as many churches, especially conservative churches right now, uh, or liberal churches, were dealing with this in previous decades. But conservative churches, uh, including Mormonism, are really uh, uh, having a really thick debate about the place of homosexuality, the place of same-sex relationships, uh, uh, and including the in Mormonism still the question of women's ordination are active debates <coughs> that are happening within the community. People have recently been excommunicated over these issues in recent, uh, in in just the last few years. So these are internal to the tradition, big debates. Um, uh, But I also hope that these are questions that are interesting to not just people within the tradition, but that uh, uh, these are the kind, it's a sort of window onto a larger set of questions about gender and sexuality and religion. And Mormonism can serve as a kind of case study for thinking about some of these broader questions that are happening within, Christian traditions and within religion more more generally too. Well,
0: thank you so much. Thank you. So, Professor Changshi, so Taiwan is well known um, for its large number of Buddhist nuns and their prominent roles as Dharma teachers. Why do you think so many young women are committing themselves to religious life in Taiwan?
5: Um. Okay. Um, young women in Taiwan. Uh. Um. Yeah. Um. Maybe you think I'm young, I'm not. Yeah. <laughs> 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 but indeed, I uh, decided to become a nun since I get my PhD in New York. And then, yeah, it's 29. And then I decide to become nun. Yeah, it's kind of young. And I think, um, uh, yeah, indeed, uh, quite some young women in, in Taiwan uh, want to choose uh, a monastic life um, because I think, um, first, I think um, Buddhism in Taiwan is, is quite engaging in society. It's not so seclusive. So, for women want to practice Dharma at the same time want to do some devotion to society, I think monastic life is a is a good choice. And uh, and secondly, is um, uh, why and also in Taiwan the um, the sangha the female monastic sangha is uh, is strong and diverse. So, um, if you want to learn no more dharmas and the meditation um, uh, in a systematic ways. I think um, Taiwan um, offer um, you know, education in seminary uh, or even university for the dharma training and the meditation. So the learning um, environment is uh, in Taiwan is quite good too for women. Yeah, and for men too. And uh, so the question is why so many women but not men in Taiwan want to uh, uh, well, uh, I like want to choose the mona- mona- uh, monastic life. I think, um, okay, the, the ratio I should uh, explain it first is uh, <coughs> Buddhist nun and the, uh, the to- to Buddhist monk, the ratio uh, in Taiwan is actually three to one. So, so like um, three, three is the, the, the Buddhist, Buddhist monk. So, so it's very um, unprecedented um, in, in world history actually what happened in Taiwan now. So <coughs> it attracts a lot of scholars to study why some the uh, Buddhist woman and Buddhist nun is uh, permanent, so prominent in Taiwan. And uh, uh, um, come back to why, why is woman not meant to, um, more willing to choose monastic um, life. I think it's because, um, I think it's a little bit about Confucianism uh, because Chinese culture is, um, based on Confucianism, is more a patrimonial society. So, um, mainstream expectation to men is more than women. So, uh, the expect- expectation of um, uh, mainstream um, <coughs> to, uh, you know, it's like hope men you know, have family, have career, and uh, um, have good economic economic um, uh, things. But for women, it's, um, you know, because Taiwan is also a democratic society, I think for women have have the less mainstream is, expectation, so so people can um, women can choose more alternative life paths. Mm-hmm. So one of the one of the choices, Yeah. <laughs> Thank
0: you so much. Professor Gerber, um, you were here last year as a research associate and you're continuing this year as a visiting scholar um, to finish your book on the way the AIDS epidemic affected a particular church in San Francisco. Can you tell us how your research has changed over your time at HDS? Yeah, a lot. <laughs> <laughs> I came here last year with a truly
6: massive, massive pile of primary materials, um, over 300 recordings of church, Um, Sermons and worship services, 20 years worth of newspaper accounts, really just a pile. And um, among other things, last year really gave me the opportunity to build what I'm calling a rich chronology that's a year-by-year and sometimes month-by-month account that sort of compares what's happening in the congregation that I'm studying, which is a queer congregation in the Castro District which was the district with the highest density of AIDS cases in this period, what's happening in the city of San Francisco politically, and what's happening with AIDS research at every given period, because it's such a, it's such a dense period of history that to really tease out what's the difference between 1987 and 1992 it was all an undifferentiated mass when I came here. And now I have this rich chronology that really is going to be the backbone of this book, sort of the understanding of how Um, the church was responding to the very specific advances that were happening politically um, and then the AIDS crisis. So it changed a lot that way Um, and it changed a number of the ideas that I'm focusing on that I'm thinking more about now than I was before. Just as an example, um, I'm thinking about this congregation as sort of a counter-history to the common understanding that the second half of the 20th century in the US is about the rise of conservative religion, and thinking about this congregation as a real site for progressive religion, but also as a constant fight against um, that sort of rise of conservative religion. So in the 80s, when I'm studying, both Jerry Falwell came to San Francisco and the Pope came to San Francisco. um, And this congregation mobilized an ecumenical response to both of those things, so I'm trying to make a I, I'm thinking a lot more of this one little congregation and the larger conversation of currents in American religious life in the period. So it was a really productive year. Plus I got to write little paper drafts and things. I did a lot. <laughs>
0: yeah. Well, thank you so much. Yeah. Okay, so we are now going to open it up to the whole panel. Um, so you all have very, um, very enriching and interesting topics about how race, gender, and difference um, affect us in different ways. And as part of orientation, everyone I know has been talking and thinking about this today. So do you have any thoughts for people as they're embarking on their HDS journey on how they should apply race, gender, difference, all, or these to their scholarship?
2: Any way and every way. <laughs>
6: One thing I would say, from my experience at least, um, I'm studying a congregation that's largely white, and to um, constantly rethink about that congregation in racial terms, it's very easy, particularly as a white scholar, to sort of um, look over the racial dimensions of that congregation, but to really use whiteness as a lens to sort of critically understand what this congregation was doing, which is a lens that they were partially using, is sort of allowing me to see different dimensions. So the constant reminder, and it's in part part of the conversation that happens here at HDS to a a constant sort of returning to these categories of difference and seeing where they're at play has sort of really forced me to look at my data and my case in a different way, and it's been very instructive. Um, Also in terms of gender, because I'm looking at at a time period where a lot of the categories that we use now easily are actually being formed and trying to figure out the distinction between how those categories have become consolidated now in the academy as we use them, and this period when they're kind of in flux and figuring it out, it's a its a constant, there's a, I guess what I'm recommending is a constant conversation between contemporary categories and the particularities of what you're studying and how fruitful that juxtaposition can be no matter what it is you're looking at, I think. Even if it seems like there might not be anything there, there's always, 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 always something there, and it's, I think those, it's useful for me in that way. Mm-hmm.
4: I think, though, although my autobiography is maybe different from Gwyn's a little bit, I think I I share that kind of dual, you know, set of questions around gender and sexuality and around, uh, uh, in my case, it was biblical studies and and early Christianity, and didn't know that you could do those two things at the same time originally, That, that that was what my original area of study was until I came here, and I was like, oh, wait a second, you can think about all these different things and uh some of my work has, has increasingly started to engage with questions of race there's a really interesting book that's published uh, uh i think just last year uh and this is shifting back to mormonism i live in these two worlds a little bit but um that uh that looked at the way that mormons were figured as not white for about a hundred years and uh and the way that um, especially their sexual practices around polygamy stigmatized them as not quite part of the civilized white people uh, uh, uh. and so I think that these questions of, of the way that race gender and sexuality uh, and religion are intertwined opens up a whole new set of questions and a whole new way of thinking about these things that have not traditionally been a, been a part of at least my undergraduate education in religion. Uh, maybe you guys were all a lot, uh, a lot luckier than I was, but uh, but uh, anyway, there, there's a lot there to be thinking about and to explore your curiosity about these kinds of questions.
0: Okay, anyone else wanna respond? Okay, so another theme that I saw in this conversation was this kind of blurred line between the human and the divine, the natural and the supernatural, um, that several of you have in your scholarship, so would anyone like to, to speak to that blurred line?
2: I think part of what is really exciting to me right now in the um, academy is um, critical animal studies. Um, and and it, it builds on you know feminist theory, queer theory, other post-structuralists, and hopefully at its best integrates um, uh, critiques of white supremacy and homophobia and transphobia. Um, So I think we are, you know, these are, and post-humanism and and critical animal studies, to me, come together. Um, And I think that it's a great moment for us to be uh, rethinking the way that, you know, the binary between human and divine, among other binaries that we've been challenging. So I just personally find it really exciting to do that, and uh, for what it teaches us about uh, history and about ourselves, um, and the ramifications for what conceptions of the human um, have the, the problems it's wreaked, you know, kind of globally and cosmically. So I'm re- I'm kind of excited about um, seeing the new research that comes out um, that that probes those questions and encourages us to rethink.
3: Well, this is, I think it's really interesting that even in today's society, that there's a lot of scholars that do not think of um, the major religions of the world as true religions. Um, And I'll give you an example. I I have a book that's coming out this next year, and I had reviewers reviewing it this past year. And one of, and of course, it's about Native American religion. And one of the first reviewers um, wanted me to change the way that I was describing things from um, this is what they think to this is what they believe may have happened. Um, And so when I was describing, it was interesting when I was describing, because I describe also um, Catholicism in the same book, there was no effort to, then this is what they think happened. Um, But when I was describing native religion, he wanted me to change all my phraseology to this is what they think happened. And so I had to write, I actually wrote back to that one particular reviewer So what, so, so what are you doing here? Like, it's okay to be Christian and Catholic and we can believe in the divine and the supernatural world, but if you're Native American religion, you can't believe the same things? And then he wrote back and he was like, oh my God. No pun intended. <laughs> <laughs> I can't believe I did that. So that we had this sort of conversation about, you know, what exactly was he sort of doing to my work? (laughs) And so then, um, and then anyway, he's a historian. So, and I'm a historian. And so um, he did not come at it at all from a different point of view. And I think that... um, um, as you are coming here, you know everybody's coming here from a different discipline, I'm assuming for the most part, and you carry that kind of discipline with you. Um, that training is to um, rethink about your own personal training um, uh, as an academic and, uh, and where, think about the different lenses that, that exist out there. But also think about um, the non-major religions of the world as being true religions. So.
5: Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And for this question, I think for uh, my scholarship, I think um, because I'm studying how uh, gender and the modernity factors um, factors um, uh, women Buddhist women uh, in terms of the institutional status and the uh, um, spiritual cultivation and Dharma outreach, and uh, I find out um, I used um, my 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 organization. Yeah, because it's easier to do ethnography, Yeah, uh, Istamarang Mountain is one of the four large large group uh, organization group in Taiwan, and we have um, you know around not um, uh, 215 um, monastic in um, female monastics in our organization, and I find out um, in terms of general that um, indeed um, gender and maternity, maternity um, brings the uh, space for for um, for Buddhist women uh, to practice and the and the leadership, especially the leadership. But I also find out that um, uh, and the why why this um, this modern team bring this kind of space. Um, I think first is the um, you know the uh, should I say ideology. Anyway, the, the gender equality humanistic value. So so it changed it changed the um, kind of patriarchal Buddhism in Chinese society yeah and on the other hand I also find out find out the uh, institutionali- institutionalization um, um, from this modernity that is means um, that this inst- institutionalization uh, behind it is a logic of um, Weber called the uh, instrumental rationality Yeah, this kind of rationality will kind of um, no, no matter you are man, man or woman, monastic or lay or um, even the relationship between teacher and the st- uh, student is changed. So it become so-called rational. Um, means um, if you have the ability, if, if you have the ta- talent, you be the teacher. Yeah, so it, for gender it's not so much you are man or female. Yeah. But on the other hand, this kind of rational, uh, rationality bring certain kind of you know like kind of like um, um, a lot of work you know you work you you know you, you work more you you um, you you um, you you are better so it's also on the other hand it gives women a lot of space to uh, be leadership and uh, preach dharma and learn meditation but on the, on the other hand it also um, you know make make us become kind of busy yeah, busy to do a lot of service, and uh, so so, and uh, and then we have kind of gradually less time to practice meditation. Yeah, so I think it's kind of problematic, and uh, and uh, anyway, just um,
0: it's it's my research. Yeah.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: <laughs> so everyone's research here is doing work to th- to. I would say the to, to challenge certain structures, whether it's being a gender structure, a sexual, sexuality structure, the structure of dominant world religions. Um, and I imagine in your work that you've gotten, as you shared, some pushback against that. So as scholars who are doing this important work, how, how have you stayed strong in your, in your work and moved forward? Prayer.
4: Uh, I I think that it just has to be interesting to you, you know, and and that that's what what motivates one's work, is that you find it interesting, you find it meaningful, you find it uh, uh, useful, hopefully somebody else finds it useful as well, so uh, at least for me, it's it's my personal response. Mm -hmm.
6: For me, I can't underline the importance enough of conversation partners, and I say this in today in part because you are all in a room of your potential conversation partners, and there is nothing that both keeps me more grounded in the importance of my work and that challenges me to rethink it from every angle possible than the handful of people that we've entered into a sort of intellectual commitment together to figure out our work together, and that in my view, is a sacred relationship, and it's a it's a grounding relationship, and it's the thing that holds me most um, to what's important to me. And um, I really encourage you to think about your conversation partners seriously, and to take those relationships really quite seriously. It's 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 one that's easy to. Um, not recognized for its importance but in my world there's nothing more important and it's part of the reason why something like the WSRP is so valuable because it allows for us to be conversation partners to each other and um, models that for for scholars who are coming here to learn their own work so
0: talk to people (laughs) over time for a long time. So speaking of talking to people, um, one of the things I really appreciate about being an HGS student here is the huge <coughs> honor we have to talk with so many distinguished professors. So I will now give you all a chance. If anyone has any questions for our WSRP research fellows, now would be the time to ask it. Um, so if you have a question, please go ahead and raise your hand. Yep.
2: I have one. That's pretty special. I know you mentioned something about uh, whenever you're doing smudging or the purification, you're, you're uh,
1: becoming less human. Um, and I was just curious what that means uh, for the divine, and then uh, the idea of transcendent. Is that, is that kind of
2: something that is reversible? Where you can go back and forth, and is, it, is the divine really divine, or are they just kind of a uh, mere I can't say mortal, but not so divine all the time.
3: I'll be taking, teaching a class next semester <laughs> no, 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 no. <laughs> about this topic. Um, it's complicated, and I can talk to you afterwards. So, um, so yes to almost all of those questions. So I am um, looking specifically at one tribal group, which is the Blackfeet, and they have a specific worldview, and they have a specific understanding of basically the way all of those things work. It's not, that's not the case with all native, you know, different native religions have different ideas. They have different worldviews. They're very different. Um, And so they have different ideas about what, the question that you had just asked. Um, In my particular case, there is a, um, with the Blackfeet there really is a distinction between the supernatural world, and that's the phraseology I like to use, the supernatural world and the natural world. And there's also a way to um, transcend both of those, for supernaturals to become natural, for naturals to become supernatural, and to go back and forth. Um, to, to As I had said before, to interact with the supernatural world, to participate in rituals, religious rituals or religious ceremonies, um, purification is part of that. That's first. So you have to purify yourself. And again, part of that is become, the process is becoming less human and not that you're becoming more supernatural because you're not, but you're preparing yourself to interact with a supernatural. So, but I can tell you more. (laughs) It's it's complicated.
2: you do have to, well, I think you do have to acknowledge your perspective um, and use that knowledge to then, you know, interrogate and think about what possible blind spots you have. Um, But I think that it's probably not enough, but one of the major things to do is to be aware of that and to put that out there. Um, And so we don't talk about the native view of the world or the Jewish perspective or the feminist perspective or the queer perspective, right? This is my perspective, you know, informed by this. I don't know if that, you know, so that's I think um, one of the things to do. Um, And also to educate yourself uh, or educate myself um, so that I am more aware of what my um, perspectives are informed by and what my biases might be.
3: I'll answer your question in a different way. I think that it's extremely important for members of community to, to study their own community. I think that it's, um, um, if you don't do it, who will, <laughs> right? And I think it's really important for, especially if you um, come from a um, group that's been colonized, um, I think that it's um, very difficult to find information about those groups. And I think that if people from that particular group themselves don't, aren't the ones who are leading um, the scholarship. Then um, no one else will and and it's important for um, people to study their their own their self
0: over here?
6: I, I would say I' was trained in sociology and sociology has a number of sort of theoretical tools to try and help people sort of think through some of those questions systematically from standpoint theory where you're encouraged to think about your particular social location and the privileges and the disadvantages that you're bringing in relationship to the community that you're thinking about. Um, Reflexivity which can be very sort of personal like I am such and such a person in relationship to the community I'm studying to really interrogating um, the categories of analysis and the histories of those categories and I find myself having to think about um, both of those things a lot in being in relationship to community that I'm not a member of, um, and understanding yeah, the privileges and the limitations I bring in that knowledge, and then also the possibilities that having a bit of an outsider perspective can bring to that. Um, but some disciplines have really sort of um, hyper-developed theoretical ways of thinking about your positionality in relationship to the groups that you study.
0: OK, yes?
5: Actually, it's linked to a question you haven't asked. Don't worry. <laughs> <laughs> okay. okay, the, the question she, she, she originally wanted to ask me is, what difference does it make when the Dharma is transmitted by women teachers? And, uh, I think that linked to your question. Um, yes, um, in terms of social justice, I think um, because um, you know in, China, in historical record of uh, Buddhism, I know in Chinese, I think also in other tradition as well, woman teacher is so rare to, uh, to be record. And uh, 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 give you an example, like, um, um, we have many hagiographies. Hege- so one of the hagiographies um, uh, is a chain Buddhism, and uh, um, we have more than um, um, 1,700 um, male patriarchs, but only one, um, woman patriarchs be recorded. So I think um, the research um, uh, doing doing uh, the making of mother, mother uh, female teachers, female Chan teachers, I think it's important because um, first, it's, it's give a woman a, uh, a record in history. Yeah, I think it's very important because it's um, 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 uh, not only that uh, for his uh, historical um, perspective, but also for, you know, for, um, uh, for women, uh, um, or for Buddhist women want to practice Dharma, I think if a man, your teacher is a, is a male, is not the same sex, sometimes um, some kind of question is hard to ask, you know, in terms of, you, know, you want to consult with some uh, personal problem or spirituality with, with, with the teachers. And also like learn meditation. Sometimes the, in the meditation process, it's, um, it's um, some kind of body reaction or mind, some kind of unconscious, unconscious mind arise rise, and, and uh, some memories. So so I think um, these things, if you talk to, um, if you are a woman, I think to talk to a woman teacher, I think it will, you will feel more comfortable and more related too. So um, in terms of subjective, I think, um, First doing research is you know people will um, think this is an important issue and, uh, and the graduate people will um, um, you know practice like to uh, um, to think um, um, respect more women's women teachers and also um, and other things yes
2: okay. I think social justice, in many ways, I mean, for the again, five to ten people, three to five people who might read my work, yeah. <laughs> um, right, is the is the tough is a tough question. I find um, um, I find there's potential there, right? So queering stuff or looking at texts um, differently, I think can have an impact, right? Um, largely, I think my bringing together of social justice and academia comes through teaching. So um, when I my My research trajectory remains within rabbinic literature um, still now. I don't know what will happen after, but I teach broadly and um, I try to integrate, I try to challenge myself to teach um, things that are of interest to students and nationally happening and um, important. So I taught a class on rape, slavery, and genocide um, in the Bible and culture um, last year at Swarthmore because I, among, you know, along with other people <laughs> across the nation, were um, well, was watching the news and living on a campus. Where clearly racism is there, and also the sexual assault stuff was coming was coming to the foray. So I wanted to try to give us um, some tools to to think about that, um, both historically and currently. And so I feel like that I do believe um, in the relevance of interpreting texts um, and in ways that. Build a more just society. Could
1: you give us an
2: example of of a text? Uh, Well, you have to take the queer Bible for that. (laughs) Yeah, I think it's. I'm trying to think of one example for a text, but um, you know, I I do a lot of work with Genesis one and two and three, right, the creation story, and um, it's one of the texts that you know you'll commonly hear, right. God created Adam and Eve, not Adam and Steve. And you look at the Bible and it's not really that true. You know? Um, So you just begin to, you know, look closely at what uh, what a text says and what does it say about the construction of gender um, and the birth of heterosexuality and possibly its undermining in the very same text. And you give people tools you know, um, to rethink, especially religiously inherited or publicized um, simplifications. And so, I, that, you know, that's one of the one of the examples um, that I often go to. But I, you know, for I think there's I think part of the appeal is to to um, introduce students to feminist and queer and trans readings, right? Reading, readings that are informed with race and class, and you know. Um, is all these, all of these problems that we face, um, and have you come up with, with what your examples will be, um, and um, and learn from that kind of engagement, mm-hmm. and, and that there is there, you know, the central, the so, the social justice thing that's central to my work is that um, whether we are, you know. I don't know whether we believe in this Bible in any of the, you know, I don't have the time to even parse what any of that statement means. But, um, <laughs> <laughs> but if we, you know, are, I think we live in a society where religion, the Bible and other religions um, have impact on us um, and whether we want it or not. And again, so the more knowledgeable we are about it and the more complicated we can make it, um, and it's not hard to make it complicated because it's relatively complicated. Um, then we are we are working to undo, um, you know, a, a pretty heavy tool of oppression that's been used um, over many peoples.
0: So we have time for one more question. Anyone else? Um, I'm thinking
1: about the fact that you're all here for a women's studies program for a year and uh, I'm old enough to have been present at the creation of women's studies as a as a discipline and I'm thinking about the fact that several of your topics would not at that time, and I mean this totally neutrally, have been viewed as women's studies. So I'm sitting here wondering from that perspective, how you see your relationship to women's studies at this point? What are the gifts of that legacy? What are what are the challenges and limitations of it?
2: <laughs> That's a good question. Anyone want to take it up? <laughs> I I think there are there you know it's a complicated you know path. Um, I teach a class that talks a lot about se- um, nineteen not here um, but um, second wave feminist theology, um, and and I and we also you know run through we I give I I read it and I reread it every other year or so, um, and and we take the critique of second wave feminism, um, and we talk about it. Um, and I think that, um, you know, there are real critiques about it, but I'm also often impressed at the, um, the you know, at the things that are still um, ring true, oppression, and the, and the ways that, although um, second wave feminism was, um, on some level, you know, it was sometimes homophobic, deaf, you know, racist, uh, there were voices against that and, and then I guess what I think, when I do a class on theology and I go from um, feminist theology to trans theology, what I, what I actually, I was thinking about last night, would, one of the common things about it is anger and rage. So, and I, and I am really touched by that anger because you should be angry. And, and I taught it, you know, and they're, I've taught it to other, to students and they're like, they're so angry. And I'm like, yeah, you should be angry. Um, and then we start, cert- and in the same class we start, and they don't necessarily like it from the feminists, because right, what do a bunch of white women have to do? Be angry about? It? Okay, but when we get to trans theology, and there's this rage, and they're theorizing the rage, um, and using it, you know, it's they, everybody's all about the rage, and so I, I, I <laughs> you know, I do, I, you know, so it's certainly critiquable, and this, so woman studies as the as the, the name place for that. You know, I, I wanna, I, whatever I do, I do on the backs and on the shoulders of second wave feminism. Um, and, you know, and people will hopefully stand on my shoulders and point out, this is back to you, my blind spots, right? And my biases that I can't see. Um, but I, you know, and, and I wanna work to make women's studies, you know, if, if we're not gonna just replace it to gender (coughs) and sexuality studies, which is viable, um, but if we're gonna keep women's studies for, for certain reasons too, um, then, um, I want an expansive understanding of woman, man, gen, you know, beyond, like, I really want us to understand these terms in ways that are malleable and stretchable and complicated.
0: Thank you, I know we are going have much more to say. We're gonna have to put a bookmark there um, because we do not want you to be late to your barbecue. I'm sure you don't wanna be late either. Um, please though, take these, look at these wonderful WSRT classes we have this semester. We hope to see you in them and come ask questions if you have any. Thank you.